0: You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig, and I co direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St Andrews. In today's podcast, we're traveling back in time to ancient Greece to look at how the Greeks themselves visualized war, how we imagine ancient Greek warfare, and how later generations have understood, represented, and even prosecuted their own wars in response to ancient Greek models. With us today are two experts on ancient Greek warfare. Dr. Owen Rees from Manchester Metropolitan University is the author of several books on Greek warfare. He knows a lot about Greek naval battles in particular, but his current research focus is on how men were prepared for war in the ancient world and then what their experience was as veterans when they left war behind them. And that feeds into wider research he's doing on trauma and the veteran experience in the modern world. Dr. Roul Koninodyke from the University of Oxford is an expert on ancient Greek military thought and its modern reception. So he looks at how Greeks wrote about battle and what ideas of warfare and values we can see in their writings, and also at how modern scholars have then interpreted those ideas and values in relation to prevailing military ideas in their own day, and helped build certain myths of Greek warfare, which have influenced wider understandings of war. So. Owen and Roel, I'm really looking forward to talking to you both today. I've got a lot to ask you about ancient and modern habits of visualising war. But first of all, let me say hello and welcome to the Visualising War podcast.
1: Hi, thanks very much. Great to be here. Yeah, hello. Thank you for having us.
0: OK, so, Owen, I wonder if we can start with you. When people think back to ancient Greece, which wars tend to spring to mind? What classic or iconic battles or warriors do people tend to know about? Um, and maybe what cliches about Greek warfare tend to come up.
1: Right. In terms of the public psyche, if, if we can tap into that, I think there are a couple of iconic wars that always spring to people's mind, even if they have only a passing kind of understanding or knowledge or experience of Greek warfare. The first is actually a fictional war which must be the Trojan War. It's amazing how often this comes up as an example of Greek war, as if it was a real war and these were real people. So when you ask about famous warriors uh, of Greek world, you very quickly start to see fictional names come up. The obvious Achilles, maybe if they know a bit more about it, they may name Hector, hero Mm -hmm. of Troy. You know, Agamemnon, Odysseus obviously comes up, widely Odysseus. So the Trojan War definitely has to be up there. I think its cultural influence has a lot to do with that as well. In terms of historical war, the big one undoubtedly has to be the Persian Wars. The invasions of Greece by the Persians, definitely by Xerxes. This is the one that jumps to most people's imagination. You know, the famous stand of the Spartans and the Greeks at Thermopylae, which no doubt will come up later. And I suppose really the Battle of Salamis, those are the two battles most people know about. Those are the two that they visualize. There's a slight irony there because most people aren't really aware of Plataea, which is probably the most important battle of the Persian Wars. And of course, you can't really ignore Marathon. I don't know if people necessarily understand the context in which Marathon occurs. It's often kind of banded in as one of the Persian wars, one of the Persian invasions. It's not quite as simple as that. But the Battle of Marathon, absolutely, is this iconic moment in uh, what people like to term Western civilization, this moment of a deciding moment in history. If you're going to write a book on turning points in history, I'm afraid to say Marathon usually starts it, as flawed as that is. (laughs) These are the kind of wars that most regularly come up and I think actually kind of indicate the ideology that we attach to Greek warfare throughout. I mean, I haven't named possibly the the most influential war in Greek history, which is the Peloponnesian War. I don't find people with a passing knowledge of Greek warfare really know much about the Peloponnesian War. Persian Wars, absolutely. You know, it's the Persian Wars that you get films like 300 about. And Troy, obviously, you get Brad Pitt running around half naked. This is what grabs people's imagination. As a result, this creates a few kind of misconceptions about Greek warfare and the way Greek warfare is kind of conducted and who's involved in it and things like that.
0: Can you explain to our listeners why the Battle of Marathon is thought of as a sort of turning point, but why that's actually perhaps problematic?
1: Okay, so Marathon is considered a turning point for one very simple reason, and that's because the Athenians obsessed over it. It's kind of as simple as that. So the Battle of Marathon, a large Athenian force takes to the field with one of their allies, Plataeans, and they stand against what their narrative describes as an indomitable Persian force. This was an impossible event. There's a lot of what we might refer today as national myth building going on. A battle of Marathon. It's a battle that the Athenians really claim as their own. This victory is theirs and no other Greece. And that's often why the Plataeans who were involved in this are often pushed to one side as a result. It's quite hard to kind of explain just how central this was to the myth building of Athens. There are two things that I think kind of sum it up. The first is Athens as a military society create a golden generation. So very similar to modern day or many countries, their golden generation is the generation of World War II. The Second World War, that's the generation, that's the generation who gave up everything to fight for our freedom. A lot of the same ideologies floating about. So the Athenians, this was the fighters at Marathon, what they called the Marathonomakoi, the Marathon Fighters. And this becomes a named veteran group in Athens and something that's almost a stick to beat younger men with. You may have done this, you may have done that, but you're not as good as them. You're not as honorable as them. You're not as devout as them. You're not as uh, good in your civic duty as them. They are perfection that you will be measured by. That is the kind of cliche that goes around Athens. So that's the first one. Marathon is so important. It becomes that golden generation. The second is in Athens itself, at the Agora, the marketplace, they have a apparently a beautiful mural painting along a stoa, which depicts important events from Athenian mythological history. You know, there's a bit of the Trojan War in there. There's a bit of was it Theseus fighting the uh, Amazons and things like that? You know, important moments from Athenian mythological history. And you kind of read it chronologically as a painting. And at the very end is the Battle of Marathon. So even within like the construct of this battle for the Athenians, they almost turn it into a myth. They align it with the heroes of Troy, the heroes like Theseus and all these kind of mythological names we're used to. That is how important Marathon was to the Athenians. And of course, they wrote about it. They tell us how important this is and how influential it is, and how, you know, the Persian invasion was going to destroy Athens, it was going to destroy Greece, and it was going to eliminate that level of freedom.
0: So lots and lots of myth-making already that we're finding out about. So the first war you mentioned that lots of people have heard of is actually a mythical war, the Trojan War, but even with the historical wars that we know about, Salamis, Thermopylae, Marathon, but particularly Marathon, Rule, can we bring you in here just to talk a little bit more about this, about some of the cliches that um, circulate today about ancient Greek warfare and how it sort of resonates in the popular imagination?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, the really interesting thing that Owen already touched on about the Persian Wars in particular is that it gets claimed by certain states to say, like, we were the ones who basically bore the brunt of this. And in the narratives that we receive for this period... You see the Athenians particularly claiming marathon and saying, OK, well, in the end, we all fought the Persians, but we did it first. Like we were the first to win. They even have like a particular verb for what the Athenians did at marathon, which is pro Like we took risks ahead of everyone else, which is a really interesting way for them to use like a rhetoric of saying like we were ahead of everyone fighting these enemies, which, you know, for the glory of all of us. And later on, of course, when the Spartans win the great land battle of Tia, the Spartans get a similar kind of sense of like, we did this for everyone else on behalf of everyone else. And I think the way that those stories were told, even by the ancient Greeks, end up <laughs> leading us to think of these Greek warriors as firstly a great defenders of a sort of communal idea of the Greeks, which is then associated with freedom and very inappropriately with democracy, but which also leads us to think of them as being uniquely powerful fighters, that they have something over the Persians, which means that they can defeat them in battle, even though Persia, of course, is much more larger and wealthier, a much more powerful empire. And so in order to make that story make sense, we kind of have to imagine the Greeks as being superior fighters in some way. And hopefully there, again, the sources kind of give us ideas like bits of an idea of why that is the case where they heavily focus on the greeks fighting as heavily armored spearmen in close formations which is too much for the lightly armed archer persians to handle this creates the basic cliche of west versus east heavy infantry civic militias versus kind of coerced large mobs of light-armed warriors which is a cliche throughout history and this still kind of determines the way that a lot of people see these kind of conflicts regardless of what you know the truth value behind those claims actually is
0: So, so much ideology in there, political ideology about, well, civilization, democracy and so on, um, but also some military ideology. And of course, with Sparta in particular, there's a lot of investment in the sense of this sort of supreme military education and training as well, isn't there?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the, 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 there is a huge um, ideal of Sparta that builds on this and that the Spartans themselves built on the story of Thermopylae and on the story of Plataea, in which they claim that it's just because they they do things better and they are more prepared for war. Um, and actually, when you look into that, it, it's not all, I and mean, we'll, we'll get into this later, but it's not like there is very much of a foundation behind that. But it's certainly something that other Greeks are happy to pick up and that later generations seem to really run away with the idea that the Persians, that the Spartans are uniquely superior in warfare and, 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 and um, almost exclusively focused on being better warriors at the expense of everything else that a society may be, you know, intended to do. So they start to, especially in the most recent reception of Spartan history in the last few decades, they become really, really characterized as being warriors at the expense of everything else, that they are perfect warriors. They're like bred and trained from childhood to be nothing but soldiers. And that is what they do. And so in most other situations, you don't have much use for Spartans. But if you put them in a combat situation, they will fight and fight and eventually win. And that is, you know, the thing that they have no rivals. That is generally the picture that we have of this of the Spartans that develops out of the stories they told themselves about the Persian Wars.
0: Owen can you help us unpick this a little bit more so what you know one of your books is called Great Battles of the Classical Greek World and I wonder if you can give our listeners just a flavour or two of a couple of the battles that you look at there but particularly to help us understand a little bit more about the realia about what um, Greek warfare was actually like beyond these myths so maybe talk about some of the mechanics of it and some of the things that were more representative rather than idealized of ancient Greek warfare.
1: The issue, when even when I started the book, was I was given the title. And of course, anyone who spends a lot of time in military history immediately recoils from the idea of a great battle. And you want to go, well, how do you define a great battle? Is it the amount of people who died? Is it the amount of people who fought? Is it the importance of the battle? Are we stuck on this idea every battle was a turning point? Are we stuck on this idea that every battle must have a definitive outcome? So it's not easy. It's particularly not easy when it's Greek warfare. We're not blessed with that many Waterloo's, lose, where you can kind of go, yeah, okay, fair enough. I appreciate the intricacies of what's going on, but that's an important battle, no matter what you make of it. A lot of Greek battles end in kind of a stalemate, almost a political win rather than a military win. So it's never quite that simple. The other issue is I can make the mistake of what many historians before have made, and I've no doubt made in my book, which is that by handpicking your battles, you create an image of what you think Greek warfare should look like. So for instance, if I was obsessed, as I once was, with the idea of what's called hoplite warfare, you know, uh, this heavy infantryman that rule uh, very politely rose as an issue. You know, this, this idea is the citizen, soldier, warrior, with his large characteristic shield, round shield, and spear standing in what's called a phalanx, this deep shield wall design. I could hand pick about four battles and I could present that as this is what Greek warfare is like. It is mass against mass, smashing together, mano a mano, blood, sweat, tears, best man wins. This has been a model of Greek warfare for a long time. Conversely, I could be deviant, as I sometimes like to be, and handpick ambushes. Just go through all the ones where there's uh, deception, a very Odysseus style to warfare, rather than your Achilles style of warfare. And that, again, I think misrepresents Greek warfare. For me, Personally, Greek warfare is defined by chaos and opportunism. I'll stick with chaos because I like it. I don't like this idea of orderly rectangles around a map being pushed around. It's not me. In terms of chaos, for me, the epitome of Greek warfare has to be something like whether it's the Battle of Plataea, where the Greek army present themselves ready for the Persian army. They then change their mind, kind of retreat back to another position. The Spartans aren't too convinced that's a great idea. But their commander wants them to do it. But the lower level officers don't want to do it. So there's a bit of an argument through the night. And then by the daybreak, the Persians have noticed the Greeks are in complete disorder. So everything that happens from there. And amazingly, the Greeks win this battle. God knows how, but they do. Everything from that moment is in a state of chaos. Everything is in a state of chaos. I think there's a real beauty to that. We oversimplify Greek warfare. Greek battle is usually a combination of various elements going on at the same time. It's not just heavy infantry. It's not just cavalry or light infantry, rarely get a mention. It's also logistical support, usually from the Navy or ships, if you don't want to use too bold a term like Navy at this point. My other favorite conflict in Spartan held territory at a fortified area called Pelos, and then it uh, continues onto the island of Sphacteria. Famous in most history books because it's supposedly the only time the Spartans ever surrender. And the Greeks, in particular, going back to what Raul was talking about with this myth making of the Spartans, the Greeks are said to be in shock because the Spartans surrender on the island of Sphacteria. Reason why I love this battle so much um, is because it starts in complete chaos. It begins with an Athenian plan, not even to go anywhere near Pylos. They're planning to go further north around the islands to the northwest of Greece. And a younger Athenian commander jumps on and goes, can I come along too? And they agree. There is a storm as they come around the west coast of the Peloponnese. There is a storm. So they decide to take cover at Pylos. Now, they know they're in a dangerous situation. They know this is problematic, but they also know they intend to leave. The Athenian commander realizes an opportunity. Why don't we fortify it and just stay here so we're protected if the Spartans do decide to come? The men, the Athenian men, the orderly democratic men who follow all orders because they're the epitome of what masculinity and warfare should look like, say no. That's a stupid idea. I don't want to do it. I just want to sit and drink wine. I may be paraphrasing. He's refused. A few days pass. Those men get bored and they decide to now fortify the area. So the Athenian commander asked them to do it. They said no. They decide to do it. The commander now can't stop them from doing it. That gives you an idea of how much control a Greek commander really had over his men, especially outside of the Spartan system. And inevitably, the Spartans do turn up and try to besiege the the fortification. The Athenians hold out. The Spartans then put some men on the island of Sphacteria, which is just off the coast. And then again, the Athenians see an opportunity and basically create a naval barrier so that no one could come in or out of this island. And then they then land a force of predominantly light armed troops to deal with the small hoplite force of Spartans on the island. As I say, the Spartans get beaten back, their commander is killed. It gets to the point where the surviving command structure of the Spartans is like, what on earth am I supposed to do? They send word to the Spartans, what on earth should I do? And the response back is basically, Uh, along the lines of do what any good Spartan should do. So we surrendered, which is a revealing moment in, uh, when we consider our own myths about the Spartans. That kind of gives you the idea. Uh, one of the reasons why I like the Battle of Pelos and Sphacteria is because of its multifaceted nature. We've got the Navy, the Spartans themselves attempted marine landings to uh, the position at Pelos as well. We have the Navy involved, we have light troops involved, we have a siege going on, we have fortifications going on, we also have the political element going on. And this is more the reality of Greek warfare. There's so much going on, but at the very core of it all, It's the kind of chaotic nature of amateurism that I think is an important defining feature of Greek warfare.
0: That's some great myth busting there, Owen. Fantastic. Sort of breaking down some of these ideas of, you know, incredibly well-trained forces, ruthlessly brave, you know, never backing down. And really showing the variety of different approaches and different fighting formats and approaches. And then the role played by chaos and opportunism, as you say. Rule, can we bring you in here again? So we've talked a little bit about the myth making around ancient Greek warfare, And a lot of what we know about comes from written accounts. I think you've done a lot of work looking at how ancient historians and other thinkers and writers represented and visualised the wars that they talked about. So I wonder if you can talk our listeners through that a little bit. First of all, which literary sources have been particularly influential from the ancient world in shaping our understanding of Greek warfare and building these myths?
2: it's a great question because the thing is that actually when you look at the material that we mostly rely on when we try to reconstruct these kind of campaigns like the one Owens just described i mean this is a few chapters in Thucydides and it is primarily these few uh these historical narratives that we receive from ancient Greece, so Herodotus Thucydides and Xenophon and a couple of other works that are similarly sort of either autobiographical or biographical that tell us an actual narrative so these are histories fundamentally Despite the wealth of evidence that we have outside of those histories, when we want to reconstruct battles and campaigns and wars, we rely primarily on a few texts that are really not all that long or detailed. And when you want to talk about the history of warfare, we benefit from the fact that this genre, as it developed in ancient Greece, decided very early on that its its appropriate topic was warfare. So... Herodotus essentially decided, I'm going to write the history of the Persian Wars. I mean, he wrote about a hell of a lot of other stuff, but his main focus was why did the Greeks and the barbarians go to war? That was his his central question. And then Thucydides essentially decided, well, my war is bigger than yours. I'm going to write about the Peloponnesian War. And that sort of set a sort of fixture of ancient historiography, that its main elements are wars and the political maneuvers towards or uh, or back out of them. And so we actually get a lot of information about wars from these accounts, but they obviously fit into a particular genre a particular way of doing it. And the way in which they've done it, in which, you know, things like battles are, are sort of set pieces, you know, you, you use them, but you don't use them too much and you don't use them in too much detail because these things have a literary function. They fit into a story, but they're not a the whole story. And as we go, essentially, the way in which these things develop become sort of fixed, become tropes. And as they become more and more fixed, like, okay, when you're writing history, you're gonna to have to have some battle set pieces. They're going to involve certain features. You know? You're know, going to enumerate forces. You're going to have like a speech and then you're going to show like the basic um, maneuvers against each other. Then you're going to say which side won and why. Like these kind of things have all been sort of laid out in recent scholarship. Like, look, if this is all formulaic, if this is all standard, then how much of it can we really trust? How much of it can we rely on in order to understand what it was actually like? Because this is clearly a literary event as well as a historical events, or even predominantly a literary event. So in Herodotus, you actually get really, really detailed accounts of battles, more in the mold of almost Homeric fighting, because he was still trying to figure out how to do a battle set piece without essentially doing Homer all over again. <laughs> but later on, they become more and more terse and more and more simple. And by the time you get to the Roman period, a lot of battle descriptions basically boil down to and they ran at each other and one side fought more bravely. And it really isn't all that informative. And then this many people died. Sometimes they will actually tell you. So it is very interesting to know, to be aware of. And we do have to be very aware. But what I always stress is that even though pitch battles are a big set piece and you get them a lot and you start to wonder how, much, how valuable these accounts are, they are not the only way in which armed conflict is described. And this is why it's very important to focus on what Owen just explained, these kind of campaigns that end in very weird, mixed, chaotic, opportunistic moves from one side against the other, which show you what is perhaps more close to the, the actual reality of these campaigns, which is that armed forces are sent out to open-ended missions and they do what they can to harm the enemy. And as long as the historian is willing to describe this to you as it develops, you can actually reconstruct a much more complex picture. You know, you're on much more dangerous ground when something appears much more formulaic and direct, where armies march out, meet each other in the field, have a battle, and that's it. It's really in those more detailed narratives that occur, especially in the cities and Xenophon, that you get more of a sense of the richness of Greek warfare. But because of the predominance of these set pieces, modern scholarship has tended much more to focus on the idea of the pitched battle as the cornerstone of these narratives. They have focused much less on all of the other stuff that happens around it, all of the other irregular campaigns for various reasons. I mean, partly because there's less to be learned from such sort of situational and uh, circumstantial events partly because they are less like warfare in other periods, warfare that we idolize, warfare of great big battles in which there are maneuvers of you know rectangular blocks on a map. Pitched battles are more useful in that sense for us to understand warfare. But it's also some of the evidence from the ancient sources that has actually misled us into thinking that these battles are more important than other things. There is a huge amount of focus on one passage in Herodotus where a Persian is trying to persuade Xerxes, you should go and conquer Greece." And the way he does that is to say, well, the Greeks are really bad at war, because all they do is when they want to fight each other, they go out, they march out to a level plane where they agree to meet, and then they slam into each other and everyone dies. And it's just really, really dumb. And they don't do all the things that you would actually be worried about, like, I don't know, building great fortresses and trying to fight a guerrilla war or wage war on the sea or do any of that stuff that might actually be an obstacle. And obviously... When this speaker is doing this, when he's saying this, he's using it rhetorically. He's trying to persuade Xerxes that when he goes to attack the Greeks, it will be easy for him to win because stupidly they will go and fight a big battle. And obviously your Persian army is going to be better at that than they are. So you're going to have an easy victory. It's going to be over in minutes. It's a lie, right? This is a deception. But a lot of scholars, a lot of modern scholarship through the centuries has been persuaded that this is actually true, that this is a programmatic statement that the Greeks would always favor going out and fighting a pitched battle on level ground, even to the point that they would actually agree among each other that that's what they were going to do. And they would set the time and the place and that they would march out like that. And so even though the sources give us a whole richness of military events and military experience, there has been an excessive focus on these formulaic, on these set piece, big battles.
0: That's a really good illustration, really, of the power of storytelling and then how representation, these sort of these battles, as you say, that are more literary battles than historical battles, actually then feed into the public imagination, the wider imagination, maybe the enemy's imagination, and in turn then go on to shape real military values and real military approaches.
1: I was just thinking about Rule's point there, but the uh, particular point on pitch battle and also. The kind of obsessions of our authors or interests of our authors, let's put it that way. One of the difficult things So, like, I wrote one book, Great Battles of the Classical Greek World. That was very much about picking them. I wrote another one on naval battles, and that was about finding them. I didn't select. I went hunting to try and find something I could reconstruct. You asked me at the beginning, you know, popular perceptions of Greek war and Greek battle. The naval battle at Salamis is definitely one of them. You'd be hard pushed to find another one. Uh, I did. I found 13. But it was hard. And the reason why it's hard is because, you know, we've talked about it with Greek warfare. Yeah, there are some pitched battles, they are there. And the Greeks in particular were interested in them, but they don't show everything that's going on. Naval battles, you don't really get pitched naval battles in the same way. Naval warfare is often a, a campaign. It is a continual thing. You know, the idea that 200 ships will go and face another 200 ships, and they'd agree to meet a particular wave, you know, and fight, it's just, that can't happen. And so actually, the Greek narratives on naval warfare are a little dismissive. And I think part of this is because they are campaigns. There, there isn't this kind of big, bold moment to get into. But when they do find them, whether it's like Arginousai or Salamis, things like that, when they find them, they go hell for leather to describe them in almost very Homeric style. But with naval warfare in particular, the lack of pitch battles has resulted in a lack of interest, especially historically. The study of Greek naval warfare is growing. But it's never been anywhere near as close in size, scale and interest as land battle. Now, there may be very different reasons. And I suppose the most obvious is that the ancient sources are more interested in land battles and land warfare. But another one that is worth considering is that actually a lot of our sources don't like the people who fought in naval battles. The people who fought in naval battles, these are the lowest of your social land, especially in Athens, it is the poorest of the citizens who do it ultimately the base of democracy if you want to think of it like that you know the largest voting body is undoubtedly the navy uh technically plato in particular hates them he just thinks they are the worst of the worst they have no bravery they do not live up to the ideals of athenian notions of masculinity uh, standing your ground dying for your city-state He says they run away at the first chance when they're on land. Aristophanes, the comedian, makes jokes at their expense, being farted on and defecated on whilst they're rowing. And this is humour at their expense. That is kind of the way they're perceived by our more socially elite writers. So there is also this issue of something I think Raul and I have kind of hinted at before. A lot of our preconceptions on Greek warfare are often picked up by the ideological points being made by the ancient writers. We are picking up their myths that they've purposely created for whatever reason, whether it's the Athenian obsession over marathon, whether it's the Spartan myth of supremacy that they tried to exude. We're picking those up and continuing them.
0: It's very interesting that a sort of a disinterest in sea battles and, you know, the kinds of people who fight in naval warfare actually potentially boils down to social elitism. And, you know, that explains more of an interest in pitch battles and hoplites as a sort of more elite kind of warrior. Homer keeps coming up. Homer is this sort of shadow that colors every understanding of war in the Greek world and much later. And I wonder if we can drill down into that a little bit more. So, you know, Homer, author of the Iliad, telling the tale of the Trojan War. That text was received in the ancient Greek world, wasn't it, as an authority, not simply a myth, but an authority. You get ancient Greek military manuals, which refer to Homer as the sort of the first strategist and the Iliad almost as a sort of a manual on warfare, as much as a a wonderful story that in some ways is actually a kind of quite an anti-war poem as well as a a war poem. I wonder if we have any evidence from the ancient world that warriors tried to be Homeric heroes and, and how that Perhaps was intention with, in fact, how warfare really worked. Rule, can you comment on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there is actually a really, really interesting tension between that because, on the one hand, of course, all of these Greek authors, at least, you know, the elite received Homer. But it seems like most people were at least aware of what these stories were like and perpetuated among themselves the kind of values that they expounded. So the bravery, the individual bravery of warriors, the willingness to fight for your friends, for your city, the willingness to gain glory, even in death, these kind of warrior values. On the other hand, the kind of fighting that is portrayed in Homer and the way in which this ethos makes these warriors behave runs counter to the kind of effective warfare of large Masses of citizen warriors. I mean, most of these men have had very little training, very little preparation for war. Their most effective deployment, as was discovered during the Persian Wars, is to form very large cohesive bodies and to not stray from the line. And that is exactly what is asked of Homeric heroes. I mean, they and the heroes of the poems of corteus are told to go forward, meet the enemy, fight in front of them, and. While this kind of ethos obviously persists, I mean, I've mentioned already the Athenians saying we fought in front of the rest of the Greeks at Marathon, um, at Pilos. They are perpetuating this idea that you need to be the first, you need to lead the way, you need to show your personal bravery and willingness to run risks. At the same time, there is an awareness that this is incredibly detrimental to unit cohesion. You need to make sure that your army stays together. You need to make sure that your line remains unbroken, because otherwise everybody else loses faith that they have the ability to resist the enemy onslaught. So there is actually quite a lot of tension between those value systems. And you see that play out in a lot of the way that tactical and strategic debates helped. where increasingly in the classical period, there is an awareness that citizen militias operate very erratically in battle. You cannot necessarily rely on them to give a very good account of themselves if they're put under too much strain. So firstly, you have to hold them together. You have to hold them under a lot of control. Secondly, that's very hard because they don't like control <laughs> and they see themselves as these sort of proto-Homeric heroes. They want to show each other that they're willing to go out and fight and run risks for the, for the greater good. And given that combination of priorities, it's actually increasingly realized by people who think about this to some extent that the Homeric way of fighting battles, which is to say, let's all get together and go out and meet the enemy in the field, is actually tremendously risky and actually very likely to lead to disaster. And so you get attention in the, that's visible throughout classical history between a general mass of men in the army, citizens, rowers, all these kinds of people who are basically demanding to be led out to fight. We're saying, we need to do what's right. We need to go and meet that enemy right there and show him that we are willing to stand up to him which is the Homeric ideal, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you have their commanders and you have military authors and you have, you know, people who've read Homer, but who have also understood or absorbed the experience of many conflicts and who feel responsible because if something goes wrong on the campaign, is their head on the chopping block, quite literally. And so, especially in democracies, I mean, generals are held responsible for their failures. And so they are actually arguing, let's not march out. Let's not take that risk. Let's try and find a more circumspect, a more indirect, but less risky way of resolving this conflict, of achieving our ends.
0: That's so fascinating. And it really gets to the heart of what the Visualising War Project is interested in, this sort of feedback loop between narrative and reality, where the stories we tell about war shape mindsets, shape behaviour, shape decision making. And as you say, what you're unpicking there is this incredible tension between the myth making the storytelling and the complex realities and I wonder if we could kind of follow up some of the points you've just made there. rule about generalship can you tell us a bit more about how generalship as a science or as a technaire evolved over time in response in part I suppose to some of this storytelling and this myth making.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting question in the sense that obviously the Greek world had no professional armies, which also meant it had no, no military institutions of any kind. So you can't go to you know an academy and learn how to be an officer. And so initially, it seems that generalship was just something that you did if you were in a prominent position in society that meant that you had the leadership over a band of men either, you know, through your position in a magistracy or because those men were your dependents and were in your retinue, essentially. And your ability to lead was demonstrated by deeds of valor, essentially. You had to show that you were going out ahead of the rest. This is a very Homeric concept. Um, Over time, it starts to be realized that once you have people who are, you know, elected to be generals within these communities or whose job it is like Spartan kings to lead armies, that it could be useful for them to have some understanding of what that's like before they're actually asked to do it. And it is presumably from that, although it's a completely opaque process, we have no evidence of this happening. But presumably, it began with a sense of tradition, a sense of, you know, uh, the father general telling his son who's about to be elected, how this works, or people going up to going up to other people who've held this responsibility before and asking, sorry, how did you do this? Or even indeed reading uh, histories, reading, you know, oral accounts or written accounts of how past wars actually went, in order to understand what kind of challenges they all face and how you can solve problems that occur again and again. How do you motivate troops? How do you organize a camp? How do you get your men in the right time, in the right place in the right time, in some semblance of order? These kind of uh, questions obviously recur regardless of the context. And so it's in the classical period, specifically towards the end of the fifth century that you start to see the actual formulation of an idea of generalship, of, of strategia as a teachable skill. Um, so the idea that you can, you know, uh, not just ask someone, but actually that you can go to somebody who professes to be an expert and ask them to tell you the basics, you know, to tell you the kind of things you need to know. And by the fourth century, these kind of things are starting to get written down in, in manuals. So you have the first works by Xenophon and by Enes Tacticus that specifically say, okay, These are the kind of military problems you may encounter. And this is what experience teaches us is the best way to deal with those. And this is still not in any sense a science. I mean, there is no, nobody is a professional military thinker in this world. But you have, for instance, experienced commanders like Xenophon trying to pass on what they've learned by putting it in writing. You know, not in a personal sense, not in like, okay, I know you were going to be a general, so I'm going to tell you. But in the abstract, this may be useful to you if you end up in this position. And it's from that kind of thinking that develops the, the idea of a tactical theory and strategical understanding that develops in the, you know, in the Hellenistic and Roman period into a whole set of manuals, a whole tradition of, of didactic texts.
0: So this gradual evolution of this idea of a sort of strategic expertise but I think one of the things that's interesting in that tradition is that continued the ongoing reliance well into the Roman period of examples from history and um, so lots and lots of historical anecdotes so for example the author Frontinus in the Roman period wrote an art of warfare which we don't have anymore but also wrote this collection of 500 more examples from all Mediterranean history um, and you know reading those examples you know alongside your art of war as as we've as we've discussed um leads you into the literary idea of battle potentially um as much as the lived experience and the sort of the inherited body of knowledge and expertise
2: it can be very interesting to wonder to what extent these things are indeed meant to teach you how to be a general or whether they are just like you know those victorian manuals but like if you want to say something interesting at a dinner party here's a bunch of things that you could quote because it really is just a collection of contextless detached little anecdotes that sometimes float around as well like they get attached to different generals or different commanders are the same story is told for several so you, you can tell that this is not a very scientific endeavor. This is a collection of things that are interesting around the theme. And the theme in this case is generalship. And it's it's also especially notable in that context, just how few of those things are about winning battles. How many of them are much more about motivating men, knowing where to do things, when to do things, how to manipulate your enemies, how to manipulate even your own troops or your friends or local political you know movements or institutions. How much of it is about... Things like getting money or deceiving the enemy into where you are, all these kinds of things. Very, very little of it has to do with the concrete question of, OK, my army's over here, their army's over there. How do I them?
0: Absolutely. It's a sort of distillation of lots of shared cultural memory, which presumably was read by plenty of sort of armchair generals or people at leisure more than someone who's actually about to go on the field of campaign and therefore feeds into an ongoing kind of perpetuation of cultural memory and and sort of discourse of generalship, discourse of war. I mean, this might be a good moment just to wheel back to the Greek world again and ask you how ordinary men not generals were prepared for war in ancient Greece this is something I think you've been looking at a lot as part of your research on transitions into and out of the military so for example did storytelling play a big part in how men were transformed into soldiers and what kinds of war what ideals or models of war did whatever training or what kinds of models of warfare were they prepared for
1: Because really the first thing to acknowledge is how were they prepared for war? Badly is the answer to that question. If you think of more of a modern military system, you take an individual, you acclimatize them to the military environment, you train them in various skills beyond the battlefield so that they are fully prepared for not just combat, but the entire military experience that takes time you create camaraderie with your unit or whatever subgroup you spend most time with so that that bond goes into the field with you there is a lot that goes on this takes time this takes effort and this takes commitment the greeks don't have any of that not even a little bit the reality of it is in sparta if we take our sources close to their word, Sparta have this educational system, the agoge, in which they try and acclimatize their citizens to what is required of them. Warfare is a part of that. So you could argue that the agoge in some way prepares young boys for what will be asked of them in the military environment. I should point out there's no real direct evidence that they're trained for combat. I presume they are, but there's no real evidence that they were. certainly not drills. You know, the idea of t- tactical manoeuvres, there's no evidence of it. Anyone who ever claims they are starts talking about dancing because that's predominantly what the Spartans do during the go They sing, they dance and they read poetry. That's a very different film for 300 if you use that as the basis of it. But that's very much what our evidence suggests, at least. Let's pretend for a moment that Sparta it has some form of system that somehow prepares them a little bit, tiny bit. Nothing like a professional system, but it'll do. Athens doesn't even have that. I think the best model to understand how Athens prepared men for war is they prepared men for war by creating a social climate in which this is the only way to prove your masculinity. And it's the only way to prove your role as a citizen. There are other roles you can take as a citizen. Of course, there are, you know, you take part in democracy more directly. There are magistracies, there are local positions as well. But ultimately, if you do not stand in line, preferably the phalanx, you have in some way not fulfilled your duty. Actually, in Athens, we see this articulated most clearly at possibly the most emotive moment every year during a period of warfare, which was during the funeral for the war dead. Athens is the first city-state, if not state, in European history at least, that repatriates its war dead and gives them a state funeral. This then obviously became the model for the modern military funerals and commemorations we see today. At this funeral, there is a great speaker chosen from the people who gives what's called the funeral oration. This is highly formulaic. There's a fair amount of Homer in it. There's a lot of myth. There's a lot of nation building myths involved as well. So there is a formula that gets fit. But ultimately, these are the messages. These are the ethos by which young and old man, woman, child are being told. This is the pinnacle of Athenian citizenship. This is the ideal by which we expect you all to live up to. So there, what we have is young boys being told these men have died and that's the greatest thing they could have done. I expect you to fill their space and do the same. The brothers of the dead are addressed. Your brother has succeeded in his masculine role. Why have you not? And when you actually look at the wording, it is this harsh. It's very easy to get caught up into the rhetoric of the speaker. Sometimes you've got to think, actually, what would it be like to hear that at a moment where you're mourning the dead of a family member or whatever it is? Women are specifically addressed. They are told to stop crying, stop moaning. If you're young enough, go have more children. And the implication being so that they can stand in the phalanx and they can die next. That is the harsh reality of Athenian society. This is how they're preparing men for war. The most prominent goddess on display is a very militant looking Athena. I know we like to think of her as the goddess of wisdom. She is uh, to the Athenians in particular. That, of course, she was. But she's very, very often armed and pretty much always in armor. She is a military goddess as much as she is a goddess of wisdom, a goddess of craft, a goddess of weaving, goddess of women. And that's the reality of it. War is prevalent as an idea. It is so influential that to try and avoid military service, to try and avoid your duty, could land you in court. And We have court cases of people defending their right to not go to war again this year because it's unfair. The Athenian system of mobilization was supposed to be a fair system. It's called the catalogos, where basically you're taken from a list and then it's kind of fairly distributed amongst all the citizens for each campaign. Inevitably, these things never work. Bureaucracy is not at the best of times. In Athens, when you haven't got computers and organization like that, it's a bit of a horror show. So we do get some people coming forward going, I've just come from military service. Why are you sending me off again? You've got the political, social, and cultural narrative that's telling you, this is how you are a man. This is how you should be. If you are a woman, this is how you fulfill your role in making sure men do this. The other aspect of it is that, of course, if you imagine yourself as sort of an 18-year-old coming of age, all the older men have most likely served or will know people who have served. So there is a general conversation about service that goes on. We actually see this in really random pieces of evidence. If you're looking for military history, you wouldn't necessarily look to some of Plato's philosophical treaties. However, there's one in particular, which starts with Socrates, who most people only envisage as this very wise old man. Socrates comes back from his military service for amphipolis in the north and the dialogue the philosophical treaty starts with all the young men going what was it like what happened and rather frustratingly socrates goes oh let's not talk about that let's talk about love or whatever it is that's the theme and they press and they press and they press and then plato goes oh and so socrates told them that's that's great what did he tell them (laughs) Which is another issue we always have, which is because Athens is an entirely veteran citizen society. There are many things that don't need to be said because everyone shares that experience. And if you haven't shared that experience, that's just because you haven't been fortunate enough to be there yet. So while there are tensions going on within the society, of course there are. We see this tension, especially in families, because, of course, just because society is telling you you should die for your state doesn't mean your mum agrees or your mum likes it or your wife likes it. So we actually see in the fifth century a shift in ideology in art, oddly enough, between this kind of honorable Homeric style of warfare and preparing for war, the arming scenes and, you know, uh, the reading of the liver and all that kind of thing. In black figure art, when we come into red figure art, beginning in the fifth century, we see a shift and it becomes a lot more, the scenes become a lot smaller, they become a lot more intimate. The wife or mother usually becomes quite central, along with the older father. The family becomes the focus, not war. This times in with the Athenian conscription system. You know, you no longer have a choice to go to war. You're no longer wanting to go and fight because it's the right thing to do. You've been told to. So actually, how do you deal with that psychologically? Society can only build up so much. And So we do see tension occur between family and state family and military ideologies on a very small scale as well. But ultimately, no matter how much I bash on about that in my work, these men still go to war and Athens is one of the dominant military systems. Athens is constantly trying to find new reasons to kill people as it grows its empire. It's not indoctrination. It is social conditioning. Their social conditioning must work and it must be effective because they are not trained for it. They are not educated to do it. And whilst we may say, oh, they go to the gymnasium or, oh, they read Homer and they learn from these men. Yes, the rich may have, but the poor a lot did not. And yet they were still went out and fought and rode the ships and were able to kill and put up with seeing their friends die around them.
0: So some evidence of a sort of a pushback in places against this social conditioning. But on the whole... Men of all ranks were prepared for war through cultural storytelling, social sharing of narratives, far more than any kind of pragmatic or technical training at all. So we're pulling together all sorts of really fascinating things uh, about some of the myths that circulated in the ancient Greek world about warfare, the different valuation of different kinds of fighting, hoplites relative to naval warfare and so on, and thinking about how some of those ideals and values were sort of perpetuated by different kinds of storytelling, literary and more sort of social exchange, funeral orations and so on. I think it would be great now to come on to thinking a little bit more about how later generations have visualized Greek warfare, inherited some of those myths, some of that myth making. So, Rule, I wonder if you can talk us a little bit through key trends in scholarship. How have people studied Greek warfare and how might that have actually helped cement particular ideas or even establish some of the very cliches that still shape how we view Greek warfare today?
2: Yeah, I've already briefly mentioned earlier the idea of an, a sort of modern obsession with this idea of pitched battle, which derives from a sort of small set of Greek sources suggesting clearly that this is, facetiously, something that the Greeks did in principle. I think that this has a lot to do with the way in which Greek warfare has traditionally been studied, the reason why we inherit this idea that the Greeks are heavily armed hoplites fighting in tightly organized phalanx formations in pitched battle, and that is the definition of Greek warfare to the modern sort of imagination. We inherit that from a long scholarly tradition. And it has to do with the way that military history in general has has been studied. It has usually tended to be not so much the pursuit of academic scholars interested in understanding the intricacies of the past, but traditionally in the 18th or late 18th and 19th centuries, it was actually considered to be the domain of officers. It, It is military men who want to know about the wars of the past, And they want to know because as we've established with these, you know, Greek and Roman military authors, they're interested in the past as a set of examples, and they want to use those examples to become better officers themselves. And in order to do that, of course, they have to kind of select what kind of material they find interesting versus what they have to sort of jettison as being too different to be relevant to them. And this has really shaped early scholarship on Greek and Roman warfare. So when you're looking at ancient warfare, the first academic level books, the first books that really engage with the source material, try to gather it all together in the original language and look through it in the way that Is sort of critical and not just sort of reading it at face value and then regurgitating. All of that material is explicitly written for soldiers. So it's not until the end of the 19th century that you start to get some of these works that are intended for a scholarly audience, but even those works, they know that they're being read by officers, they know that those officers have a valid voice in criticizing them, and they feel that they have to bow to the authority of officers in their interpretation of ancient warfare. And that is a really interesting point in the sense that it is not just historians doing history and telling the officers, look. This is our craft. You do your thing. We do our thing. They're saying you understand warfare. I don't. I'm a historian. I don't do this. So I don't have any experience with this. I don't have any education in this. And so your interpretation of this is more valid than mine, even though I know the sources, even though I understand the intricacies of the Greek and all that stuff. And so a lot of this work is shaped by the interests of authors. And what are officers interested in? Well, in this period in particular, and we're talking primarily about German scholarship in a context of the emerging German empire and its aspirations to a big role in Europe, they were mainly preparing for the idea of having a single decisive pitched battle with their enemies in order to knock them out in one blow. They knew they couldn't face, you know, Russians and French and whoever else was going to get involved in this all at the same time. So they had to fight battles like Sedan in 1870, where they knocked out the French Empire in one go. So what they were interested in when they were looking at military history as well is battles, specifically decisive battles. They wanted to know how to win a battle so completely, so decisively that the enemy would not be able to get up and try again. And in doing that, in trying to find guidance for the fighting of pitched battles, they were narrowing down in a lot of ways the evidence that they were interested in and the episodes that they were interested in to this idea of, well, Greeks fight pitched battles. Greeks fight fight pitched battles in organized infantry formations. Kind of similar to ours when you think about it, that then allow us to extrapolate from the way that they outmaneuvered their enemies, the way that they broke the enemy lines, the way that they outsmarted or, or you know, broke the will of the enemy. These are lessons that we can then use. When they were drawing direct parallels between Theban generals like Epaminondas and his victories over the Spartans and Frederick the Great and the way that he had beaten the French and the Austrians. So there are direct links in their mind between the way that battles work, throughout time and it is from them that we kind of inherit this obsession this idea that Greek warfare is pitch battles and that everything else that happens even though we know it happens and we can acknowledge it doesn't really matter what matters is they fight these pitch battles you know as I've said Herodotus tells us that's all they ever did so what do we need to do you know we don't need to question this we can adopt that and then work with it and that will help us so we think of Greek warfare as being exclusively about pitched battles between hoplites. That is the narrow arena within which tactical developments actually matter and concern us and are interesting. And so that has traditionally been the way that these campaigns have been studied. So you start out with the idea of like, this is your warrior. He's a hoplite. This is his formation. It's the phalanx. and These are his battles. And we can create a sort of schematic overview of what those battles look like, because as I've said, these are like... Set pieces in the sources, and then we can work outward from there. So, if you want to study other questions, I mean, you might ask yourself how these people are paid, or how they, you know, what kind of camps they build before their battles, or how they, how their formation breaks down, or how they mobilize that formation. Um, which are all sort of ancillary points. They are just kind of there as well. And they might need talking about in order to create a fuller picture. But the central interest of this kind of scholarship, this long tradition that translates from Germany into the English-speaking world and the French-speaking world, um, the predominant interest of that kind of scholarship is pitched battles and how they are won. Um, And it is only really quite recently that we've started to drift away from that and to look at Greek warfare in different ways not just in the sense of studying different parts of it, but to fundamentally rethink what is the key thing of this? What is the central pillar around which everything else is hung up?
0: So there's the inherent bias of the ancient sources, which predispose us to identifying the pitch battles as the elite, the really brilliant bits of Greek warfare. And then there's this incredible cocktail of, I suppose, the cultural capital of the ancient Greek world because all the myth-making uh, from the ancient Greek world has continued to resonate. There's the interest of uh, you know, 19th century soldiers and officers uh, and you know something that we've talked about with other podcast guests: this idea of combat gnosticism. This idea that only if you've actually been in a battle are you really authoritative enough to identify what it is about war writing that really matters. So there's that feeding into it. And then again, we kind of come back to this sort of complex blurring of representation and reality, where. People were seeking particular kinds of representation to inform their reality. And presumably then the wars that were prosecuted perpetuated this idea that pitch battle was the thing. And that's partly how it then sort of translated beyond the German language scholarship and into very much into the 20th century. And this has obviously also fed out into not just how wars are prosecuted, but how we do our modern storytelling about wars.
1: Yeah, like I said before, the... There are certain um, cultural markers that have permeated, especially art. The Trojan War is definitely one of them. So even when you see film, television, painting of war, you'd be hard-pressed not to find allusions to Homeric ideas, if not Homeric motifs. And that's just how influential it is. Even now, you will find people evoking... Homeric ideas who may not have ever read Homer and do not even know the story of the Iliad. It's just, that's what you do to represent war. That's what you do to represent suffering or death or the role of women in war. I mean, I'm not a classicist, but in classics, there is this movement of reception studies. And sometimes you read, so reception studies being the idea of the study of how later historical periods and cultures receive the ancient world and what they do with those stories, those motifs, those ideas. We're now getting into a strange, murky area of reception studies where people are starting to say, well, yes, this has Homeric motifs, but I don't think they realise. And sometimes that can be quite frustrating to read as a, a general reader, but ultimately what it tells us is just how deeply these ideas run. You've got the reverse, which is, of course, yes, the ancient world informs the way we think of war, the way we think of men of war, women in war, etc. But there is the reverse, which is we are now seeing an explosion of people using the ancient world to explore modern notions of war and modern ideas of these relationships and finding the ancient examples in the ancient world to do that. One thing I'm working on, quite it's not a work of art. Uh, It it is very much a B-rate movie that made a lot of money um, because of its main actor, which is Dwayne Johnson, uh, the former wrestler, The Rock. Uh, He played Hercules in a film. I watched it and realized they've converted the myth of Hercules into a demythologized state. So Hercules is now a human, but he's building his own myth around him. And that's kind of the premise of the story. But they rather purposefully make him a veteran. And you kind of watch this film going, well, I'm not watching a Greek notion of veterancy. I'm not watching what the Greeks thought a veteran's life was like. So what am I watching? I'm watching a modern filmmaker create a veteran film for a modern audience. What I'm watching is our own society deal with its relationship with war, its relationship with combatants through the lens of the ancient world. And that's a very different approach to some of the ones we've been talking about and one of the ones rules been talking about. It is a two-way conversation and it, it is interesting. You kind of go, well, why would you look to the ancient world for that? Why don't you just make another, you know, sort of jarhead type film? Okay, you know, there's hundreds of different ways you can take this. Even if you want to go back to an old Rambo style film, the idea of the veteran in film is not new. So why are you embracing it in the ancient world? I found in the study of modern trauma and the use of the ancient world, there is a re- uh, one of the main reasons you use the ancient world is because of cultural temporal distance. Modern veterans are happy to discuss more about their experiences through the lens of the ancient world. And I think a lot of that is to do, yes, they find similarities with themselves with people like Odysseus on his way home or Achilles in battle. They find similarities, there, but it's safely at a distance of two and a half plus thousand years ago. So the ancient world has this resonance um, and opportunity. I think it also has this continuing ideal that goes all the way back to the Greek world, which is that the Greek warrior is the pinnacle of masculinity. Mm -hmm. So in trauma theory and in trauma studies, why would you look to Achilles? Well, because he's the pinnacle of masculinity. And look, even he struggled with it, you know, um, or Odysseus coming home. Why are you looking to these heroes, Ajax and his decision to kill himself over dishonor? Um, There is a resonance there. Of course, there is. It's a way of combating stigma. Going back to Hercules, greatest of the Greek heroes played by the largest of men, Dwayne Johnson, a pinnacle of what we are told masculinity should look like. He is a bodybuilder. He has that physicality. He is a good looking man. You know, he wins sexiest man alive. This is what what we are culturally told a man should try and aspire to be.
0: Well, you're touching on some really interesting things that have come up with some of our other podcast guests as well. This yes, this idea of distance as something that's very helpful. So, for example, you know, recently I was reading an edited volume on counterinsurgency in the ancient world, and it's usefully exploratory. It's thinking, you know, there's no such thing as counterinsurgency in the ancient world, but what happens if we adopt this very sort of modern idea and look for it in the ancient world, and what can that then teach us about how we're understanding counterinsurgency in the modern world? So, as an intellectual exercise, it can be very helpful. But you're absolutely right, Owen, to put your finger on the the attraction, the inherent attraction um, and the ideals that surround these sort of Greek heroes, these Greek figures. I've come across some scholarship looking at Brian Adams' photography, which compares his images of these sort of amputee soldiers who might be taking part, for example, in the Invictus Games or the Paralympics, comparing that with ancient Greek statues. And the sort of the heroic ideas that still resonate across time about what a man looks like, what masculinity looks like. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what is it that is behind this enduring popularity of ancient ancient Greek warfare that means that people keep coming back to it, people keep wanting to read more about it, find out as much about the ideals as the realities.
2: Yeah, that's actually a fascinating question. I came into studying ancient warfare in the same way. I played Rome Total War when I was a kid. I watched Time Commanders on BBC. Thankfully, we got in the Netherlands. The idea is that I was brought in by this fascination, and I was driven to think, okay, well, what's actually behind this? How much do we really know about this? And so for me, it's a similar process of just thinking about about historical conflicts and thinking of it perhaps as something that is, as Owen points out, kind of nicely far away that is already precast into certain quite heroic narratives. So we are always learning about this through narratives about the heroic Greek resistance against the Persians or about the Romans and how they defeated everyone in their sights or these kind of things, or, you know, the great epic story of Scipio versus Hannibal or these kinds of narratives that, to us are kind of uh, maybe instantly evocative, or perhaps because we believe that the ancient world is at some level a simpler time in which a lot of these things don't carry the moral implications that warfare and violence do in our modern perception. And so it is sort of less value laden to be interested in warfare in this remote period, and that we can kind of see it as a playground, that we can see it deliberately as a place where it's free to speculate and it's free to relive things because it's safe, you know, it's, it's far away. It has no political implications. And obviously it does, this is a false narrative. Historical violence is real violence and obviously the horrors of this world are very, very real. But I think in the public perception, there can be a sense in which this is quite removed and in fact, when you look at something like that Hercules movie that Owen is talking about, like it's very explicit that there is a deliberate blurring of the line between history and myth. That when you talk about the ancient Greeks, you can talk about the phalanx formation and the hoplite at the same time as you're talking about, you know, in something like Clash of the Titans or Wrath of the Titans, you're talking about ancient monsters that we know from myth and how we visualize them and how they emerge from, you know, the union of gods and humans. These kind of things make it all seem less real and more detached from the reality that war is a horrible thing that people do to each other with brutal violence and subjection and all the kind of horrors that come with it, that may have something to do with it. That may There may be something in that. And then the other part of that, I think, is a more insidious way in which we perceive ancient societies as being, to some extent, exemplars of what we talked about before, you know, the defenders of freedom, the defenders of democracy, or, you know, a lot of people admiring Rome because it is just empire but effective, or something like that, you know, because it is dominating others with this kind of narrative that they bring them civilization and development and sophistication, and that it's therefore for the good of everyone that they're, these legions are marching along their finely paved roads. These kind of pictures also exist, which I think are, are even more dangerous, but they obviously are very, very prevalent in modern society.
0: And you used the word dangerous there, and I, I think we shouldn't underestimate, actually, the enduring power and the ways in which these ideals from the ancient world actually continue to be mobilised, sometimes under the radar, in very troubling ways that help, actually help towards sort of militarization of certain groups or, or aspects of society, and are used to foment discord and conflict, whether it becomes a military conflict or
1: not. Yes, absolutely is dangerous for that. It's also worth noting that the ancient world's been mobilised politically to the same end. A classic example I mentioned it earlier about the funeral for the war dead. The British state purposely recreated it to justify the thousands and thousands of deaths during the First World War. They were struggling with what to do about the dead in France and elsewhere. You can't bring them home. It costs too much money. That would be a logistical nightmare. The Americans chose to, but still left a lot of bodies because of just how difficult and expensive it was. And so what did they do? They looked to their own ideology, democracy, and went, what did the ancient democracies do? So they went all the way to Athens and went, okay, so they repatriated the dead. We can't do that. What else did they do? They gave them a funeral. We can do that. They erected monuments with their names inscribed on them. We can do that. They also basically created an empty grave. Kenotaphion in the Greek, giving us the word cenotaph. And we have cenotaphs in most of the major cities in our country. You look at the cenotaph in London, look at the one in Manchester, look at all of them and look at the imagery. If it's not laurel wreaths of victory encircling the date, which just screams Greece and Rome. If it's not basically engraved ribbons that decorate a plinth, which if you look at the iconography of classical Greek vases of the dead. That's how they decorated their graves. It's an obelisk evoking notions of Egypt and Rome. It's evocations of Nike, goddess of victory, more Roman goddess of victory in Greece. It was more a victory of athletics. But now, if you talk to them about that, they go, like, Oh, yeah, victory in war, which actually wasn't really a Greek idea in the same way. You know, they purposefully mobilize the ancient world for ideological reasons, whether it's to evoke duty, whether it's to evoke honor and devotion to the state. So it is mobilized, it is mobilized by dangerous forces, it's also mobilized by states regularly. Barely the Unknown Warrior has a clear Athenian precedent. These were done for a reason. Part of that reason, going back to your point, Alice, is the importance of the cultural capital. This means things. And it doesn't just mean things to the elite. This is a common misconception. When the cenotaph was first built out of wood, their intention was to take it down. The queues for miles from the public made them build it in stone. People said, yes, this is our monument. We are having this, this is ours. Now, did they understand the links to the ancient Greek world? I have no idea. Did they really see themselves as part of this cultural continuity? Possibly. But the point is is that it meant enough to them to stand and to engage in that reception, to engage in the ritual that the monument was built for. So, yes, it is dangerous, but the cultural capital is what both makes it dangerous and makes it Mm -hmm. effective to use.
0: And I wonder if we can end by thinking actually about sort of more positive uses of storytelling around ancient Greek warfare. So, you know, this has been a really fascinating discussion that has looked at the very fine line between fact and fiction that stories of Greek warfare have told right from the very, very early days of ancient Greek society through to the modern world. Owen, you mentioned your work on veteran groups and the way in which ancient Greek stories have been used in Greek theatre. So the Aquila Theatre, the Trojan Women's Project, which is another theatre project using ancient Greek stories to help not just veterans, but actually refugees and civilians, process their experiences of war. You look, I know, in your work at PTSD and whether that's a concept that we can usefully explore in the ancient world and understand better in the modern day as a result. I wonder if you can say a little bit more about how you think the storytelling that we still have about ancient Greek warfare can have positive resonances in the modern world.
1: So if you choose to use a reading from the Ajax to explore the emotions post-war of a Vietnam veteran, for instance, or a group of Vietnam veterans. That's a perfectly noble thing to do. And if it helps anyone, that was worth doing. It doesn't tell you anything about Ajax. It doesn't tell you anything about the Athenian context of that play. But that is not his purpose. Jonathan Shea was a psychiatrist of veteran affairs in the US. He used the Iliad, as basically a method. he basically got uh, Vietnam veterans to read it with them and to talk about their experiences. That was how we used the Iliad. It was not about understanding the Homeric world. It was not about understanding the Greek world in any way. It was about helping modern veterans. And that's important to understand. And that absolutely has a place. And the resonance you've mentioned, I think the capital is there. I think we, we've tapped into it before about the idea. That these are people that are seem to culturally embody masculinity, embody warriorship, warrior ideals. And here they are, seemingly struggling with things that you are struggling with or these stories that you're experiencing as life two and a half thousand years ago. They were struggling with it too. Hopefully, that helps. At that point, you do not need a snarky academic jumping up and saying, Well, actually, I think you'll find that the context is completely different. There is no place for that. That That's not its purpose. So, the ancient world can, should, and I hope will continue to be used to help as many people as possible. Aside from that, I think ancient warfare at the moment, its predisposition to move away from tactics, maneuvers, and strategies is an important movement it's not unique to ancient warfare but it is a big one in ancient warfare at the moment and i think this is where it can have a lot of influence there is an explosion at the moment in the experience of war in the ancient world and that that experience is not universal so let's explore that this has thankfully started to embrace the role of women in war so up until about 30 years ago Women were nothing more than a passive element of Greek warfare, predominantly there to be taken as a prize. That has thankfully started to dissipate. So we are starting to explore actually the intricacies of the myths that have been built. So, okay, you've got this warrior ideal. Well, hold on. What does the wife think of that? What does the um, child think of that? There is a lot of evidence that tells us what the wife thought of that. And it's not always very pleasant reading. Kind of bringing us back to some of the things Rules talked about. The evidence has always been there. You've just been ignoring it. So we're not making anything up. We're not rewriting history, as we're so often accused of. We're literally pointing out, well, there's more evidence to be read Mm
0: -hmm. or there's
1: another bit of that play you haven't looked at.
0: And more people's perspectives to bring out, and as you say, oh, and this isn't just happening, and doesn't just have to happen in scholarship. So I'm thinking now, for example, of Pat Barker's *The Silence of the Girls*, also of Natalie Haynes' book *A Thousand Ships*, both of which rewrite the Iliad but from a very female perspective. And you know, Pat Barker's *The Silence of the Girls* is is particularly hard hitting and very very difficult to read because it's brutal. It's a brutal story, but it's actually a story that that we need to hear because we've idolized Achilles and the Greek male heroes for so long. And we've just taken it with a pinch of salt that they passed women between them and that one of the spoils of war was the daughter of a king or a a young virgin bride who then, you know, became effectively a sex slave. So, yes, there's there's a huge amount actually of momentum on that front looking at different, you know, just women, but children's experiences, civilian experiences of warfare.
1: Greek warfare has been sanitized. The way it's talked about it is very clean. It is hard to sanitize modern warfare because of film and photo. It is hard to sanitize Hellenic warfare because of how it was described. I think over the two and a half thousand years, historians have been able to take bits of ancient warfare. What they end up doing is removing the more problematic elements, the nasty elements. So they focus on the heroism. They focus on the great acts. They focus on the, well, okay, 10,000 men move around here. They move left. They move right. The horses come in. Bob's your uncle. Whereas you actually want to go, well, are we going to talk about the fact that Xenophon then says with delight that the dead are piled up on each other like the wheat after harvest and that this is a gift from the gods, not for the gods, from the gods. This is an amazing, miraculous thing that has occurred, that they have killed that many men.
0: And you've got incredible poems like Lucan's Civil War on the Roman side of things, which isn't clean; it's not sanitised, and and it is actually again being used, I know, in the states amongst veteran groups to process experiences of conflict. But for some reason, Lucan's take on the brutality and the bloodiness of civil war hasn't become yet enough part of the sort of the public perception of ancient warfare.
2: When you're thinking about the idea of what can ancient warfare still do for us, how can it be a good influence? I mean, I think it's in a unique position in the sense that the general interest is there. You have loads of people who want to know about this, who want to read, who want to see movies, who want to play games that are set in this world, you know, especially Greek warfare. You know, we've seen that quite recently in things like Assassin's Creed Odyssey. So there is a huge, huge platform for it. Now, a lot of that stuff has traditionally been done very badly. I'm thinking of you know movies like 300 or novels like Gates of Fire. In that sense, I think it needs to be better. I think it needs to, in particular, acknowledge all the ways in which the war- warfare of the Greek world is very different from what we stereotypically assume warfare is like. And we've talked about this before. Owen has explained how the structures and institutions of warfare are so radically different that it's almost difficult for us to imagine that war even worked in the Greek world or how it did. Um, So on the one hand, it needs to do a lot more to try and reflect history accurately rather than just saying, well, it's war, but with a different, you know, fancy dress. But on the other hand, if you're willing to do that, then you have this fantastic opportunity to actually show people, not necessarily even what history was like or what ancient Greece was like, but just to make them aware that war is not some kind of timeless constant, that it is not the same everywhere, that it does not follow universal laws or rules, that actually it matters a lot what context war emerges from, what people fight this and why, and what kind of values sustain them and are make them willing to, to stand the enormous risk and also to do horrific violence to others. You know, the kind of social and political structures that make warfare into a certain shape are really, really interesting for us to try and think about. And to remind us that these things are not given and that they don't just follow the same rules, that they actually don't just allow us as with the the way that veterans are treated to think of war sort of as far from ourselves, to think of it through a sort of safe filter of distance and time. But it actually lets us rethink what war even is and why the kind of questions we've been asking, why we enjoy these stories, why we retell them in particular ways, why we focus on particular perspectives within that story, you know, why isn't there a movie about the Persian wars from Xerxes' perspective, because the Greeks wrote that. I mean, (laughs) the Persians exist. We can make this, right? There are all sorts of ways in which we can reimagine these stories to think differently about war.
0: Absolutely. And I think that's a good point to end on there, Rule. this idea that Greek warfare, ancient warfare, still has a lot of scope to get us asking really big questions about war itself and about the stories that we tell about warfare and the impact that they have on us. Now, it might involve us prizing people away from the images of Greek warfare that, let's say, 19th century German scholars or officers were keen on, or that 21st century watchers of film. But the potential is there really as you say there's this great platform this enduring interest there are all sorts of amazing projects going on around the world right now that some of which we've mentioned where ancient warfare is being used to ask these big questions both about war itself and about the stories that we tell about war and the habits we have of visualizing individual wars and then warfare as this not so universal construct but something that's been with human history for as long as anyone can remember Owen and Rule, thank you so much for joining me today for what has been a really fascinating conversation. We've covered a lot of ground right from the 8th century BC to the 21st century and touched on so many interesting things that are of such interest to us and our listeners. Thank you also to you, our listeners, for tuning in again. Please do join us again next week when we will be staying in the ancient world, but focusing very much on Rome. Our guest will be our St. Andrew's colleague, Dr. Thomas Biggs, who's recently published a book on the poetics of the Punic Wars. And he's also worked on a project in the US, which I mentioned earlier, which uses Latin literature, especially Lucan, to help 21st century veterans explore their experiences of war and soldiering. So as with Owen and Rule, we're going to be talking about the ongoing impact of ancient war stories in the present day. And how they continue to shape our habits of visualizing war, sometimes for better and sometimes for worse. So do join us for What Promises to be another really fascinating discussion if you'd like to support our project please share and subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode and please do leave us a rating and review on apple Podcasts; it really helps people find the show and if you'd like to join the conversation further you can follow us on social media just search for visualizing war or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at st our theme music was composed by jonathan young the show was mixed by zafir Gertin.